All right, so we are in Romans chapter 5. Today we will study from verse 12 all the way through the end of chapter 5, which is verse 21. If you are able for the reading of God's word, please rise. The inerrant, infallible word of God reads as follows. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to pen these words. That as we think about these things, Lord, about the curse of Adam, the guilt that we have in Adam, the sin that entered through Adam, that we may be reminded that you sent also the second Adam, the perfect one, the righteous, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is our perfect advocate. For that we are thankful, Lord. May your Holy Spirit, therefore, give us conviction of these truths and conviction of our sin, so that we may turn to you, that we may stop trusting in any ritual, in any self-righteousness, in any excuse, and turn to you this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So today, by the grace and providence of God, it seems that the Sunday schools have been aligning with the sermon series in Romans. Believe it or not, we didn't plan that. It's just the way that it's been lining up. So praise God for that. The first concept that I want to talk about some of these may perhaps be a recap of what Brother James uh, taught. But nevertheless, let us take a look. We need to understand the concept of 
headship, representation, headship. I have a, a little diagram here. What is headship? Well, headship is one when one represents the many. We see that in an org structure. We see that in the representation of the top leadership of a business or ownership of a business. And we see this also at home, right? At home, not everybody could be leaders. There's someone who represents the home. There's someone who represents the church, on and on. When I started to understand the concept of headship, I remember coming from Mexico to live to a small town in Texas called Hard Texas in the northern part by the Panhandle. There was a very unique culture, at least to me and, and my family, because we first generation immigrants from Mexico, right? So quickly I found out that the culture of the school and the town as a whole revolved around the varsity sports team. I remember the first time that I went to what is called a pep rally. I had no clue what that was. I was in the fourth grade, and before school got out, they took all of us across the street to the gymnasium, and they had the marching band playing and everybody just cheering, and the football players would come in. And I thought, oh, this is pretty neat. And then later that night, uh, I found out there was a, a big football game. And so went the whole town if the team won, everybody, everybody celebrated and won. If the team lost, man, it was a bummer. The whole town was bummed out. That's when I started to realize representation. Like, I wasn't playing, but I'm part of the school. I'm part of the Longhorns, right, the, the team. So as I started to see that they win, I, I would get happy too. Right? Representation. Someone is doing something. Whatever the outcome is, is going to affect me. Now, that concept is very important in the Bible. The principle of headship. When we think about one of the most famous battles in the narrative of Scripture, we think of David and Goliath. There, the destiny of two different people was basically up to these two warriors. David, Goliath. Whoever won was not just going to win over the other person. They were going to win over the other nation, over the other people. So therefore, both the Philistines and the people of Israel had everything hanging based on what would happen between the battle of David and Goliath. This then brings us to today's sermon title. The sermon title for today is Represented by Adam, Represented by Christ. Now, the passage, the passage that we read today, I acknowledge is very dense. I think this is the longest passage I've ever preached on. If you're at all familiar with my preaching, I typically focus on one verse or a few verses at a time. Never this many. It is a dense passage. Much can be said about it. Much has been said about it. I am not going to give you a dissertation about this passage. However, my goal is, as your pastor teacher this morning, for you to understand what Paul's main point of this long text is. What is Paul's main point? I have written it out here. Paul's main point is that sin and death entered the world through Adam. Whereas justification, life, and restoration came through Jesus Christ. 
If there's something we remember from today's Sunday school and sermon, please remember this. Sin entered the world through Adam. Condemnation, everything that comes with that. Whereas through Jesus, the restoration of all that, the opposite of all that came through. So, with that, we're going to see today that there is similarities between the first Adam and the second Adam. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. Considering how then we are either represented in Adam or represented in Christ, we're going to look at three main points, which are the following. First, we're going to see that all of us, without exception, are guilty in Adam. Secondly, we're going to see that some are not guilty. Some of those come out of the guilt that is inherited in Christ. And then we're going to see that the perfection of Jesus trumps the corruption of Adam. The doings of Jesus, the work that Jesus did, overrides the corruption of Adam. So let us take a look at the first point. All are guilty in Adam. Verse 12 reads for us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death reigned, I mean, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the question comes up this morning, this week, as Deacon Allen was mentioning, why is this world in so much chaos, so much death, murder, mass shootings, injustice, pace, pain, suffering, tears? And if we are honest, it seems that the perpetrators of such horrible demonic acts get off pretty easy. Doesn't it seem that way? Why does all this type of tragedies happen in our world? The short answer is because of sin, because of disobedience to our almighty creator God, which produces death, both spiritual and physical. And of that, we are all guilty. This is what we refer to as original sin. That we are all guilty. We are all, all born, not with tendencies to sin, with that too, but we are born sinners. Now this passage says that sin came into the world through one man. Let us look at the account of the fall, right, of when humanity first sinned. We're going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. It reads as follows. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, let me pause right there. Anytime you're talking to a cult, anytime you're talking to a spiritual person that doesn't believe in Christ, the root issue will be that. Did God actually say? I always remember where those words first were seen in Scripture. They were seen by the serpent, by the devil himself, putting doubt to the word that someone had already received. Did God really say? Let us continue. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Let me pause there again. 
Is that what God said? So the person that had heard the word of God is now misquoting, misrepresenting what God said. The importance about knowing what God says. Let us proceed. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So that's the end of that passage. That's the fall of humanity right there. Who did the serpent come to? The woman, right? Who ate of the fruit first? The woman. Who disobeyed God first? The woman. It's clear. Yet, our main text for today tells us that sin came into the world through one man. Not through one woman, through one man. How is this so? This takes us back to the concept of headship, federal headship. In the home, in the marriage, the man is assigned to God as a representative of that home. This is why when God calls him into account, he didn't say, hey, Eve, where were you? God said, Adam, where are you? My brothers, those of us that are married, when there's issues in your home, God doesn't come and say, Lindsay, Lucy, Cindy. He says, Gerardo, Alan, Eric, James, where are you? Now, mind you, in that little orchard that we saw, it doesn't mean that the people under are not accountable. Oh, trust me, they are accountable. The buck stops at the top with the head of that entity. But if somebody under that headship is being unfaithful, oh, God will deal with you too. So be very careful, my dear sisters, when you think, hey, I could just do what I want. The buck stops with my husband. Wrong. You will be kept accountable. Let us take a quick look at 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. It reads, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So then we see clearly that Eve was the one initially seduced and deceived, the first one to technically sin. However, sin entered the world through the headship of Adam. This is the headship that we are under, the posterity of Adam, all that are descendants from Adam, which is all of us. We are all, in a sense, part of Adam's household. And we are under the headship of Adam. That's why it now says that death spread to all men because all sinned. The tense there, all sinned, in the Greek, is a unique activity taking place in the past. Okay? When Adam sinned, 
all that was his descendants also sinned. Everyone sinned in Adam. Now, this is important to be understood because if we don't understand the concept that we are guilty in Adam, we will not be able to understand the concept that we are redeemed, that we have redemption through the second Adam, the headship of Christ. I also like to mention that if we don't acknowledge the fallenness that we have in Adam, we can be in danger of falling, falling into heresy, like Pelagianism, which means that even though Adam sinned and he fell, if I try really hard, I can still be okay. I can still not sin. That's oversimplified, but in a sense, if we don't understand this, we will not be able to acknowledge what the Bible says about the nature of men. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, That's the nature of men in Adam. Now, Paul goes to a tremendous extent in this passage to drive the point home about being in Adam and what that brings. Adam transgressed, and as a result, that headship that we have in him makes us all guilty in Adam. I have pointed out how that happens all the way from verse 14 through verse 19. We'll look at it just here paraphrased line by line. Verse 14 says, Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 15, Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. That's verse 17. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See that? Paul is just making sure that we get that. Making sure we understand that. And what we ought to make of this is that we are all guilty in Adam. Okay. That's, that's what Paul is telling us. And the key there is not that, that I'm a sinner because I sin or that you're a sinner because you sin. You sin because that's what you are. You're a sinner by nature and choice. I've often said that there's never been a, a sin that I didn't enjoy doing. At least for the moment being, right? So then Adam's sin is imputed to us. What does imputed mean? Again, it's a term we must understand so that we can understand the imputation that Christ brings. Imputation of Adam means that whatever is being charged to his account is being charged to us. It's like somebody left the restaurant and they left it with their bill, right? That's kind of what it is. But again, remember, something greater than that is coming. When you are left with that huge bill of all your sins, and then that is given to somebody else. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. See? It works both ways. So then, let us take a quick look at Romans 5, 13 and 14 so that we get a little bit of insight into what this imputation, this credit that is being given to us, either bad or good. It reads, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So the moral law was given to Moses, okay? From Adam, the first man, to Moses, when the law was given, we are told that no one violated any explicit commandment, right? Nobody could go and say, oh, look at the Ten Commandments. You're violating a certain amount of those Ten Commandments. But Paul already addressed the issue earlier in Romans of what happens to those that don't have the law, to those that don't know the law. If we remember, when we studied chapter 2, starting about four, right at about verse 14, Paul says, they are without excuse because they have a conscience and God has written the law, morality in their hearts, in their conscience, and people cannot keep it. Not only that, but God has given the account of natural revelation to know that there is a creator and people have yet rejected that and rejected God. Okay? So even though there was no law from Adam to Moses, we are told that death still abounded. Right? Men were not in tune to obey God according to what God had put in their heart. Rather, everyone rebelled. Now, how do we know that death reigned? Because wherever there is death, there is sin. There's rebellion. It goes hand in hand. All right. Secondly, we've established that all are dead in Adam. All are guilty in Adam. Secondly, now, some become not guilty in Christ. Romans 5.14 reads as follows. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Now as I look at each of these verses. There's a lot to say about it. But again we're doing a, a quick exposition through it. So let me focus on the part that says. That Adam was a type of the one who was to come. From the very beginning of the account of the history of humankind. We are told that the first man was already a type of the one to come. Remember what Jesus said in at least three instances. He said that the law, the prophets, the Psalms was written about him, right? So when Jesus would go and argue with the Pharisees and speak at the synagogues, they accused him of blasphemy. Because he was saying, not only is all these scriptures that you're reading and teaching about, not only are they about me, but I am egoimi. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of claiming to be God himself. I mean, who, in the mind of a Jewish person, like who does this guy think he is? What do you mean everything is written about him? That's, that's a pretty arrogant statement if it's not true, right? So everything from the beginning was about Jesus, pointing to Jesus. In Christ, Jesus is the second representative that 
does and did what the first representative could never do. That is the war between the first Adam that transgressed, that was corrupt, and the second Adam who was able to be born of a woman, according to Galatians 4, 4, being born under the law, and yet never committing any sin, never falling. Adam voluntarily sinned, taking everyone down with him, whereas Jesus voluntarily left his throne in heaven, entered his own creation, lived perfectly without sin, and then died for others so that those who trust in him may live. So in Adam, we all die and we deserve death, condemnation, whereas in Christ, we receive grace. We, we receive what we don't deserve. Now, we, we ought to note that when Adam and Eve sinned, all it took is one sin, one disobedience to bring down the entirety of humanity. This should remind us of the seriousness of our sin and not think that God takes our sin lightly. What happens when we keep sinning and we justify ourselves? Let us remember that it took one, one disobedience to bring down the whole realm of humanity. Because God is holy and he will not tolerate sin. That should be a call for us to repentance and to obedience. Now it says that we will reign in life, right, with Christ. It says even much more. It's not that only we are dead and now alive. We were dead and we are now alive. Christians says that we, we will reign. We reign in life because the representative that we have, he reigns over death. He reigns over sin. And just like the concept of headship, whatever that headship, whatever that person at the top wins for us, we win. Just like Adam being at the head of all sinners and fell, we all get that. Similarly, the one that has defeated that, defeated sin, death, corruption, we get that. He reigns. We reign. He's the king. We are part of his kingdom. Now, honestly, it might not seem so much like it in this world, especially in our times. But just as Jesus rose from the dead, someday, after all those of us who trust in him, when we are in the grave, we will rise in a glorified body because death will not be able to hold us back because of what Christ did. There's a text in Acts that says that the grave could not contain Jesus. There was no penalty, right? Death is a penalty. There was no penalty, no chains that could hold him down to death. He had to rise again. In such manner, all those who trust in Christ have that promise. Even if it seems far away today, let us remember that God is faithful to fulfill his word. Now, we see this language here that talks about, after talking about the transgression and how we fall in Adam and we are guilty, then it introduces this phrase, 
the free gift. Okay? So let us take a quick look at those annotations. Verse 15, it says, The free gift is not like the trespass. The grace of God and the free gift. Verse 16, again, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. Okay, free gift, free gift, free gift. What is the free gift? Paul actually answers that question specifically in the next chapter. So we'll take a, a quick sneak peek at it. Romans 6.23, he reads as follows. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we get in Adam, right? Wages of sin is death, we will die. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See that? The free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. In Adam, all humanity is condemned. Somebody could say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Well, the answer to that is simple. Have we all not sinned? We have. Therefore, we deserve death. So what are we complaining about? So please understand this then. If you reject the headship of Adam, you cannot partake of the headship of Christ. Today, this very day, this very morning, as we are here in this room, you are either today under the orchard, if you will, of Adam. All of us have been there or are there still. And some are under the orchard being represented by Christ. Let us think, which headship am I under? Those that are under the headship of Christ, those have received the free gift that Paul is talking about. Right? Because not all are saved. Only those to whom God gives eternal life. The obedience of Jesus is given to those as a free gift. The grace as a free gift. Salvation as a free gift. Justification, right? Remember? Justification being made right legally before a holy God. Those recipients are the ones who are awarded the gift of eternal life. Okay? So some make it out into the headship of Christ. Thirdly, the justice, the perfection, the goodness of Jesus is bigger and trumps the corruption of Adam. Let us take a quick look at Romans 5, 18 through 19. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So before I comment, let me quote another verse, which is a correlation to this one. Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the message here is this. We, me, you, you're already in trouble. 
Yeah, there's nothing you could do to say, oh my God, I want to make sure I don't get in trouble with that. Too late. That, is, uh, that boat has self. And in a sense, there's nothing we can do to be against God because we're already against God naturally, by nature. That's the default nature of our being. Spiritually speaking, we are dead on arrival. That's original sin, as we earlier spoke about. Similarly, Jesus came to this earth. He left his throne, not to merely make it possible for some to be saved, but to be the headship of those that he would save. It's a done deal. It's not to maybe, you know, he'll, he'll go and knock on people's hearts, see if they open. Nope. If Jesus saves you, he's going to save you. Whether you're kicking, screaming, revolting, your family hate, doesn't matter. If God's going to save you, he's going to save you. It's a done deal. Jesus did that work that was necessary to guarantee that those who trust in him will have eternal life. Now, let us comment on why is it that the law came and it increased trespass. In the Jewish mindset, they thought that if they had the law, this was, they were very self-righteous because they had the law and others didn't. In their mind, there was this notion that sin would decrease. They're the chosen people, they have the law. And because we're the chosen people of God and we have the law, now we're, we're all set, we're going to sin less. But what does Romans 5, 20 and 21 says? It reads, now, the law came in to increase trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So having the law didn't make things better. It actually made things worse. Because now you're exposed. It's like saying, like, my hair might be okay. I may not or may need to shave. Maybe I need or not to change my clothes. And if you're in front of a mirror, you're going to think that's going to make it automatically better. But if we're honest, for many of us, it's like, oh, wow, yeah. I do need some, uh, <laughs> I need some uh, cleaning up. Right? So when the law reveals who you are, your trespass increases, right? We are therefore made aware of our sinful nature, of our trespass, specifically what our trespasses are when we have the law. Now, thankfully, it says that when sin increased, that there was something that abounded even more. Grace, the undeserved, the undeserved favor of God toward us. That abounded even more. See, what we have in Christ trumps and is of much higher impact to those who trust in Christ. Because that grace that Christ gives us abounds even more than whatever sin was previously reigning in us. So then the law reveals sin. The law is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. The issue is the heart of man. It's me and you. We can't keep it. And it shows how corrupt we are. So therefore, we need to trust only in the righteousness of Jesus so that 
His righteousness is imputed to us. Right? We want to be under the headship of Jesus. We don't want to remain under the headship of Adam. So that we are strengthened to obey the law, not to win being under his headship. No, because we are under his headship that I want to obey. I want to honor my Lord, not to gain anything. I, I cannot gain anything, but out of reverence and thankfulness to a savior that has given me grace that has abounded even more than my rebellion and my sin had under the headship of Adam. The Savior that gives us new desires to love what He loves and hate what He hates. Now let me just say something about some ways in which some people have been misled by this passage and others. Some have used this passage to say that just as all die in Adam, all will be made alive in Christ. And they take that to mean everybody's going to be saved. Hooray, you know, party. Now, is it true that all sinners will be saved in Christ? No, that's heresy. That's the false teaching primarily known as universalism. And it has been creeping into the Christian church, to, even to, into reform circles. Some form, some form of another that at the end of the day, everybody's going to be fine. And God is going to have mercy on, on all, even if they don't repent. That is not true. Now, how do we know this? My friends, Paul is a scholar. He's a very sharp-minded man of God. He had just finished telling us in the passage previously this I preached on last week, that there is the wrath of God coming to those who do not repent. Okay? How can he go from that to now saying, hey, don't worry, all are made alive in Christ? No. Let us not be confused, either by our own reading, by our own sin, or by somebody coming like the serpent came, asking, did God really say that only those in Christ? It's like, God didn't say that. As a matter of fact, he did. Let us not be tricked there. So then, what are we left with this morning? I have three quick reflections for us for application. Number one, we are told that there is the first Adam and there is the second Adam. The second Adam being Christ. The question for you is, which Adam are you in? As we recall, we are still or we have been, all of us, under the headship of Adam, the first Adam. Right now, every one of us is in one of those two camps. You are either dead in your trespasses and sins, finding excuses of why you are the way you are, or why others have wronged you, and therefore you can't forgive, or this is why you fill in the blank, whatever it may be. You are in the first Adam, right now. Or you are in the second Adam, that is Christ. In which attitude we come to the second Adam, like the tax collector that came and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're told that person went home justified. 
zero excuses. That is how we enter into the kingdom, into the headship of Christ, knowing that we have nothing to offer. Have you entered to that headship? Have you come to Christ, as we talked in Sunday school, as a humble little child who says, Daddy, I need help. I can't do it. The next question then is, how do you know which Adam you are in? The first or the second? For some of us, for some of you that may be discouraged thinking, you know what? I'm, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm in the first Adam. And you're beating yourself up over it. Although I think that's a better place to be than having false security of salvation. Still, my friend, if you are beating yourself up because you are not perfect, know that you have a Savior who is and that He has grace for you. Now, on the other side of the coin is some who have false assurance of their salvation. And while they think that they are in Christ, that they are in the second Adam, the way to show and prove that is, show me your fruit. What kind of fruit does your life show? Is it good fruit? And you could say, yes, I have plenty of good fruit. Then let me change that question for you. Is it not true that you have good fruit so long as somebody doesn't piss you off? So long as somebody doesn't offend you? Is that true? So then the real question is, how does your fruit look like under pressure, under offense, under being sinned against? Show me your fruit then. Oh, now we got a little too personal, right? <laughs> I would not like to show you my fruit when somebody cut me off at the freeway two days ago. Oh, when I'm seeing some some news reports, right? But that is, the, that is the real test. My brothers and sisters, show me your fruit when you are under pressure. What does your fruit show? That's when it counts. When everything's fine, an unbeliever could fake it. So then, this is the danger of having false assurance, of preaching on God's grace. It says that grace abounded all the more. There's a danger in that because we may think that God will overlook all the signs of my unregenerate heart. My friends, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. God will not look over the sins of your unregenerate, unrepentant heart. It took one sin to bring down the entire humanity. Do you think God will give you a break? May that be an exhortation for all of us to not fool ourselves. Let us repent now. For there is grace that abounds much more than we can imagine. But are we repentant? Yeah. Lastly, 
an application for those of us that are heads of household. How are you representing your household this very day? Those husbands, those fathers, and in some sense, even single mothers, right? By default, you are the head of your household. How are you representing your headship today? Are you following Christ? Are you under Christ yourself? Know that you will give an account to God for your headship. God will call you by name and ask you, where were you? Submit to Christ and lead under the headship of Christ. And then lastly, to those under that household, that household, wives, children, are you submitting to your head? Are you honoring the men of the house as the head? Are you supporting your husband? Children, are you obeying your parents? Know that the Lord Jesus will give, will ask for an account from you as well. Let us go away knowing that we have a Savior who abounds in grace, who will not turn away anyone who comes to Him with a contrite heart. But one who cannot take a prideful person as someone who repents because that's not possible. Let us draw our hearts, our minds, our whole beings in conjunction to come into the headship of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the work that Christ has done. His perfection, His goodness, His obedience, so that the guilt that we have or once had in Adam would be wiped away, Lord, by the work of Christ. And just as all are dead in Adam, that we would make that great exchange into the hands of our Savior, giving Him our sin, our corruption, our disobedience, so that He may give us His righteousness. We thank You for those truths, Lord, and we ask that if anyone here is not sure about that, that we would talk about it, Lord. That we would not stay quiet and that we would know that the church, the people of God, are here for each other. To build each other up. To keep each other accountable. So that we may be the army of the Lord. We ask this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.